0: We're in a series of messages under the title, Unity, Liberty, Maturity. How Christians can learn to get along with one another. Our text has been Romans chapter 14 verse 1 as we work our way through chapter 15 verse 13, a relatively long portion that deals with the same subject matter, and that is how we can learn to get along with one another according to Paul's words to the Roman believers. We're dealing specifically with a section in chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, under the subtitle Dealing with Non-Biblical Opinions Among Christians. How do you react when someone questions your judgments on non-biblical issues? What do you say to those who believe that you are in error in the way that you're conducting your Christian life and in ways, obviously, that are very different from their own? Do you despise them even for asking? Do you seek to pass critical judgments about them for how they're conducting their Christian life and practice? How can we learn to get along with one another even though we approach the gray areas of the Christian life very differently? Well, that's the subject matter that is before us. And Romans 14 and 15 has a great deal to say about living together in the body of Christ, especially as it relates to those freedoms we have to form acceptable opinions before the Lord. In the initial section of verses 1 to 12 of chapter 14, the Apostle Paul gives us much biblical insight into how to pursue our unity, how to pursue our liberty, how to pursue our maturity as believers in Jesus, even in the midst of significant differences, differences of opinions on non-biblical issues. Paul, of course, as I have been telling you, divides this first section into three pieces. Verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 9, and verses 10 to 12. And we've already seen from the last two messages how verses 1 to 9 fit into this overall argument of Paul, and now we have verses 10 to 12 before us this morning. But in order to understand the strong nature of Paul's words in these verses, let me briefly reiterate what we have here in the prior verses to verses 10 and 12, 10, 11, and 12, and why Paul speaks of Christ's judgment as he does in those verses. Listen to what Paul says in verses 1 to 9. Romans 14, "...as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." Paul has uncovered some significant issues within the church at Rome that desperately needed to be dealt with. There apparently were Jewish believers in Jesus, at least we assume a majority of them, but probably also some, some Greek-fearing or non-Jewish God-fearers who had also placed their faith in Christ whom Paul calls weak in faith, because they were not convinced they could eat meat or drink wine in the context of table fellowship with their Gentile Christian counterparts. They had a view that saw some of the Old Testament rituals, like fast days or Sabbath day observance or festivals or some of the food rituals that they thought might be perpetually binding on the Christian's life even after placing their faith alone in Christ. And their fellow Gentile Christians had no such convic- convictions, mainly because they did not have any conscience-bound issue with these kinds of things. They were eating all kinds of meats, they were drinking wine, They were not singling out any particular days of the week or the month or the year for any special, significant spiritual purposes of worship or celebration. Thus, there had become apparently some real conflict in the church about how to make decisions regarding these key areas of the Christian life. And Paul addresses both groups and their attitudes in these verses. And rather than starting with the strong, he talks about the weak. He's going to talk much about the strong in verses 14 to 23. We're going to see those very, very clearly. But he talks about the weak in faith to begin with and how they should rather accept and welcome They're brothers and sisters in the faith, and he implies, of course, that the strong ought to do so because that's what God does. God has welcomed both groups into the kingdom. Those weak in faith were not to pass judgment, and I use the word judgmentalism. That's the sin for which they were involved. There was a judgmentalism in the church. They were not welcoming the strong Even though God was welcoming the strong, and apparently the strong were not welcoming the weak. Because you see, according to these verses, each side in the debate honestly believed that they were right in what they were choosing. They believed they had marshaled all of the correct arguments on their side. They believed they were right in how they were choosing to approach their Christian lives The difficulty, of course, is that neither side could stand the choices of the other. That's really what was happening. They had their own convictions. They had their own arguments. They had their own logic. They were completely believing that the way they were choosing to live their Christian life was absolutely right, and the way that their counterparts were choosing to live their Christian lives in these non-biblical issues was wrong, and therefore they were either despising the one or passing judgments on the other. They were not content to rejoice in each other's differences. They instead chose to despise and to pass sinful judgments, judgmentalism, upon each other. John Stott helpfully writes, "...whether we are thinking of the weak with all their tedious doubts and fears," Or of the strong with all of their brash assurances and freedoms, they are our brothers and sisters. When we remember this, our attitude to them becomes at once less critical and impatient, more generous and tender. Unquote. So true. And this, my beloved friends, is the exact issue that Paul is addressing here. And it had apparently gotten so bad that Paul is forced to speak very soberly, even to the point of coming to talk to them about their ultimate standing before God. First... He says that regardless of whether you are strong or weak, God has not only welcomed you into His kingdom, but he is, he is ready, He is able, He is sufficient to make you stand, that is, stand firm in your Christian life, even with the differences in your Christian conviction about how holiness is supposed to occur in these non-biblical areas. God is able to make you stand, even until the end of your Christian life so that you might be ushered into eternity because of God's grace and enablement. Whenever Paul or another Bible writer begins to talk about eternity, begins to talk about judgment, begins to point us to the place where we're looking to eternity, he's really talking about very serious things. He really is. And he says, furthermore... Jesus Christ died for our sins and he raised us up from the dead and that because he was raised from the dead to prove that he is Lord of all, that he is the one to whom we are accountable and he will ensure that we have a safe passage to eternity with God in heaven. Therefore, who are we to judge? He's the judge. We're not the judge. We are not to judge fellow believers as though they are really answerable to us and our supposed lordship. He's he's really hitting at this issue, my friends. He is Lord and we are not. We're not the Lord. We're not the judge. You remember I said last week, it's like what we say to our children. You are not your brother's keeper in that sense. When especially we hear them say, you're not the boss of me. Well, from kids to senior saints, we often believe we are the judge of one another. We are the judge of one another. And Paul says, no, whether you live or whether you die in the living and the dying, you're not your own, you are Christ's. You're not the judge of each other in your living or your dying. You are set in the Christian life to please only, ultimately, one person, and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're there to please Him, glorify Him, answer ultimately to Him alone. So don't go around acting as though I'm your judge. Don't go around assuming you're my judge. We are fellow servants of one another. Fellow servants, not each other's judge and lord. Because if we seek to judge or evaluate people's non-biblical opinions, and that is what we're talking about right here specifically, if we are seeking to judge their non-biblical opinions, and we thereby seek to determine whether or not they are acceptable in our own minds, we usurp the role that is only to be filled by Jesus Himself the only and real Savior of sinners and the one who has been raised from the dead and who will raise us from the dead, proving that he is Lord of all, that he is uniquely the sovereign of the skies, and we dare not try to usurp his place as judge of the universe and certainly not the judge of each other. He alone has the right to judge believers and their non-biblical choices, and that is precisely where we left off last time with what Paul says in verses 10, 11, and 12. Look at it with me. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, the other group, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to whom? To God. So then, each one of us, each of us, will give an account of himself to God. This is very serious, very sober words. As I said a moment ago, every time the Scripture speaks of our standing before God to give an account of ourselves to Him, He's talking very seriously, very soberly about what it is we're doing. And if it's in the negative like this, He's in essence saying because this will happen, don't do what you're now doing. It'll be a severer chastisement. Notice in Verse 10, the first question that Paul asks, it's just like the one he asked in verse 4. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? That's just like verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And if you've followed Paul's line of argument here, he's really talking with that particular question about the weak believer the weak in faith believer, because this is what the weak in faith were doing in Rome when it came to assessing the actions of the strong. They were being judgmental toward those who possessed more liberty than they did. And we covered this in great detail last time. Since they could not, they simply could not in their own conscience choose to eat meat or to drink wine, which we'll see later, verse 21 they were sinfully judging those who had absolutely no restraints in doing so. And it might be along the lines of some kinds of state uh, statements like these. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Do you know for sure that some of these things from the Old Testament law have passed away? Are you sure? Do you believe this is right to do? Have you prayed about it? Have you looked at your Old Testament lately? You think this is right? You think this is what the Lord would have you do? I'm not constrained to do these things. Why are you? Now, with some kind of assessment like that, or maybe even more strongly, might be something like this. What you're doing, I believe, is wrong. I think your thinking needs to be addressed because I believe you are in violation of some of the things that the Lord wouldn't have us be doing in our Christian lives before a watching world, especially the Gentile community in Rome, the pagans around us. Do they assume that we are mere libertines doing everything that we want to do in our Christian lives, irrespective of those Old Testament principles that we have? You're doing the wrong thing. You better think about it again. These critical judgments I need to make about you. Sorry. This is just the way it is. This is the way I'm choosing to see things. Paul says to them, don't react that way. Love them. Welcome them. These are non-biblical opinions. Accept the person as God does. And, and if you you don't accept them, if you don't welcome them, he in essence says in verses 10, 11, and 12, God's going to judge you. God's going to judge you. You cannot pass critical judgments on non-biblical matters that are not explicitly stated in the Word of God because if you do, you are in essence passing critical judgments that God Himself has not passed. You see? Don't try to take a role that is higher than the very role of God Himself who has accepted them, who has welcomed them. And then he asks... The second question in verse 10 to the other group or you, why do you despise your brother? Just as he framed the same question in verse 3. Don't, don't do it. Don't let the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And it's the reverse. You know, you would assume that if he was be, if he was talking about the weak and all of their passing of critical judgments, that the strong is saying, yeah, you get him, Lord. Yeah, talk to him. Tell him how the cow ate the cabbage. Yes, sir. Cannot pass those critical judgments. Look, you gotta be free, brother. You gotta understand. You got all these rules and all these regulations about all these non-biblical opinions. You gotta just stick with the Word, man. You gotta, you gotta have the right kind of freedom because the Lord's created all of this kinds of meat. The Lord's created wine. You ought to drink to the glory of God. You ought to do all that you can. To show everybody that Christianity is not just a bunch of rituals and a bunch of rules and a bunch of legalistically binding ideas. No, no, no. Don't hang that on me. Don't put burdens on me that my conscience doesn't even bear. I'm free in Christ to do those things. And you know what that kind of response, that kind of attitude can breed? It's despising. I, I, I'm looking down my nose at you because you just don't get it. You just don't understand. And so he says, why do you despise your brother? Remember, as I said, to despise someone, using the Greek word which Paul uses here, exutheneo, can mean, among other things, to reject, to scorn, to treat with Contempt by the way that last definition to treat with contempt is the word actually which is translated in Luke 23:11 to depict the very roman soldiers and their attitude toward jesus during his unjust trials they were despising the son of god hey whatever whatever you do as a strong person don't be linked up with a word that's used to speak of Roman soldiers who were despising the very Son of God. It's also used, by the way, same word in Luke 18, 9, to show how the Pharisee was treating the publican, the publican who was beating his breast and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee was standing, according to Jesus, some distance off, saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like this publican here. I tithe all I can get. I do it because it's right to do. And look at this publican over here. And there's a despising, a looking down your nose at somebody else. It's also this particular word, despise, used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, to talk about Christians who were taking other Christians to secular law courts, and when they were doing so, they were doing it among the law courts whom Paul says has no standing in the church. That's the same word, no standing, no account. You know what it is to despise somebody? It's really to say, you're of no account to me. You're of no account to me. When you despise those weak in the faith who live with their self-imposed restrictions on the Christian life, you're treating them as though they have no real standing in the church. You know what he could even be implying here? Maybe he's even implying by the very use of this word that maybe what the strong were doing, were saying something like this. Are you really sure you have standing in the church? I mean, you get all these rules, you got all these rituals you have all of these obligations you've got all of these self restrictions that you've imposed upon yourself are you really experiencing real standing in the church very serious the corinthians toward paul are even said in second corinthians chapter 10 verse 10 to see him in this way listen to it his bodily presence is weak And his speech of no account. Despising him. Look, he's got a weak frame. He's got this ugly disposition. His speech is of contemptible nature. Who is Paul? Who is he? And what is interesting... Even though Paul was really hard on the Galatians and it's really easy for someone to turn from loving you and caring for you and welcoming you and accepting you to despising you, he says about the Galatians, those Galatian region of churches in Galatians 4:14, though my condition was a trial to you, possibly even something physical, he says you, you Galatians did not scorn, that's our word, or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. He said, you treated me as though I were Christ Jesus himself. I would say that's the opposite of treating someone with scorn. Treating someone in the name of Christ. That's how how we ought to treat our brethren in the church who have very different opinions than we do on non-biblical issues not scorn, not contempt, not with disdain, but we welcome them, we love them, we accept them as full-fledged members of the body of Christ. We don't go around saying, well, you know, so-and-so. And they approach the Christian life so differently than we do. I mean, you know, I'm just wondering where their head's at. Do, do, you, do you suppose that maybe there's even a possibility that they've been totally derailed? I wonder where they are spiritually. If you come from the motive of the heart that despises someone like that and they are genuine members of the Christian community, that's a serious sin. And that's what Paul's dealing with. He is saying in Romans 14 that if you're going to pass sinful, wicked, critical judgments upon those who are free in Christ to form their own opinions about debated areas, and if you're going to despise and scorn and reject and disdain those who freely of their own accord because they have convictions to do so, abstain from certain things because they have legitimate in their mind convictions regarding them to both groups, Paul warns this. Look at it in verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now that's serious. You know what Paul's saying? Instead of judging others, instead of me placing myself in the seat of judgment upon another believer, Paul reverses the whole process and says, Do you not understand that both groups are actually going to stand before the judgment seat of God? Instead of judging others, we're all going to stand before our ultimate judge, and that judge is God himself, and we're going to undergo our own scrutiny by Jesus without any of our fellow Christians being anywhere around during our own time of scrutiny. Now that, my friends, puts all of us in a position where we say, one day as I stand before the Lord to give an account for how I lived my Christian life, I look around and guess what? There's no other judge for me but the Lord Jesus. No other judge. No one's going to stand there and say, but judge, I had an earlier judgment. I'm going to stand Alone before the Lord to give an account of these areas for which there was genuine disagreement. And I've got to come up with convictions on my own. And I have to come up with reasons whereby I do what I do in the Christian life. And I'm not going to be able to say, but it was so-and-so who judged me. And I judged my own Christian life on the basis of their judgment. No. It's the Lord Jesus alone who will judge and conversely, there are going to be people who are going to be standing right with me in the Christian life who are going to say, don't do that, stay away from that, abstain from that. Or someone's going to say, you're legalistic, you've got freedom, you've got hang you ought to be able to do that, you're staying away from things, it's your own fault. I have to crowd all of that out of my mind and I have to come to a place of determining how in these non-biblical areas and we make these decisions every day in our Christian life. Every day we're making decisions that have no particular right or wrong perspective to them whatsoever. You say, what are those? Well, I gave a few last week. I'm going to give a few more. Not this morning. I'll get to that when we get to Verses 13 to 23, we're going to talk a lot about that, about stumbling blocks and about offenses, and we're going to talk a lot about what some of those areas are, but we make a lot of decisions about the Christian life all the time that have no patently right or wrong answer, and I have to understand that there is one person and one person alone for whom I will stand alone to give an account, and that is we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Again, John Stott writes very helpfully, We have no warrant to climb up onto the bench, place our fellow human beings in the dock, and start pronouncing judgment and passing sentence because God alone is judge and we are not as we will be forcibly reminded when the roles are reversed. End quote. When Paul warns that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, he uses a legal, judicial, technical Greek term for the word stand, and it's used in the law courts of Paul's day to refer to someone literally standing before the judge. It's the Greek word paristamai. It's only used, that particular word, right here in this text. But there is another passage. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Even though that's peculiar to this text, here's one that has really the same kind of idea. And if you've never really seen this text, you ought to know it because it is so very important for your Christian life. This ought to, this ought to change you as to how you approach the Christian life. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage, Second Corinthians 5, 6. We know that while we are at home in the body, that means living here in life, physically, our minds, our attitudes, our actions, we're living in this body, that means in this world, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That means we're not in His physical presence. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That means we would actually rather be out of this world and with the Lord in His presence. Verse 9. So whether we are at home, that means living this life, physically speaking, or away, that means in heaven with the Lord, we make it our aim to do what? To please Him. And then verse 10. For we... What's the next word? Must. We must. Every single believing person must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. That means during your Christian life, before you go to be with the Lord, whether good or evil. That word evil being actually the word foulos, meaning more, in my judgment, worthless. Worthless. You see, we're we all doing something in the Christian life for which there is an ultimate evaluation by the Lord Jesus Christ and that ultimate evaluation will be that our deeds done in the body will either be good or commendable or right or righteous and those things which are not are considered by him foul loss, worthless. And you know what will happen to those worthless deeds? They'll all burn up. They'll be consumed. And what he says here is, we will all Christians appear before the judgment seat of Christ, called the Bema judgment. That's the Greek word, Bema. B-E-M-A. Bema, the Bema seat judgment. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat seat and if you combine what paul says here in second corinthians chapter 5 with what he's speaking about in romans 14 within that context as christians we will all appear before the evaluative bema seat of judgment to give an account for how we looked at our fellow brothers and sisters in christ in the non biblical decision making gray areas Well, i tell you, this just puts a huge premium on not judging people, not despising people. If our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ choose to do something that is their freedom to choose or to abstain from, what is our response? Don't judge them. Don't pass critical judgments about them. Don't be judgmental. Don't despise. Don't look down your nose. Don't don't scorn them don't have contempt for them disdain for them and I want you to notice what Paul says in Romans 14:11 quoting Isaiah 4523 for it is written and this is sort of that language of Philippians 2 for it is written as I live says the Lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God now we know how Philippians 2 is using it But now in this context, how do you assume he's using it? Remember now, context, non-biblical opinions, gray area matters. You know what he's saying? You and I will one day, as the Lord lives, and he lives because he died and was raised again, every knee shall bow to me to give an account for how you responded to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with those non-biblical opinions. You're going to stand before the Lord one day. And you're going to have to give an account. And for every good judgment you made, charitable judgment, loving judgment, welcoming judgment, accepting judgment, you'll receive reward. And forever critical judgment, sinful judgment, despising judgment, scornful judgment, disdaining judgment. That work will be foul loss, worthless, evil. And you'll be chastised. And you know what the chastisement will be? The good works will be evaluated and you will be rewarded. The foul loss works, the worthless works for which you'll be evaluated will vanish away as will reward. Very serious. This is every knee bowing and every tongue confessing to God that it is Christ alone to whom we are ultimately accountable. Ultimately accountable. That's not to say that we're not accountable to our brothers and sisters in some sense, because they are our fellow brothers and sisters. But our ultimate accountability, the ultimate judge, is the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And while we would should seek to minister to those Around us in the body of Christ, our Lord, our Master, our Judge, is God the Father Himself and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and His Spirit, the Spirit of God, for whom and in whom we live and move and have our being, and it is to the triune Godhead that we ultimately obey. Every knee bows to the Trinity as Lord and not to our fellow Sinful creatures as Lord. Every tongue confesses our allegiance to the Godhead, not ultimately to each other. And you know, that really ought to smite us about critical judgments. And they roll so easily off the tongue, don't they? So-and-so shouldn't be doing that. It's wrong. They should not be approaching their Christian life like that. They're legalistic, they're narrow they got too much liberty. They're libertines. Shouldn't do it. Do you realize what kind of chaos would occur in the church if in all of these gray area decisions we make every day, we would be attempting to submit our obedience and loyalty to every other Christian around us? Do you know how difficult that would be? Impossible. Because every single person has their own unique opinion about how the Christian life ought to be lived. You'd be going this direction, they'd say, no, no, don't, oh, don't, turn around here. Okay, I'm going this way. No, no, turn around here. No, I'm sorry, well, I can't do that because so-and-so. And, well, I, he said, I could. Well, I, okay. You'd be like the man that jumped on the horse and rode off into all directions. Can't live your Christian life that way. I mean, it's hard enough. I walk out of my bedroom with what I think is just a marvelous sartorial sartorial splendor of an outfit on and my wife says that's not working. And I've learned now after 21 years you just turn right around and march right back into the closet. It's hard to come out of the closet. You see the non- Biblical opinions of the Christian life are open. Open season. Judgment cannot be made. Despisings cannot be perpetrated. No. Nope. Precisely why Paul ends this section by saying what he does in verse 12. So then, each one of Each of us, each Christian, each Roman believer, each believer of the Bible Church of Little Rock will give an account of himself to whom? To God. And this doesn't mean, as I've said, that each of us as Christians is a complete island unto himself. It's not what that's saying. If you took that to mean that, then people would say, well, I'm just sort of the self-styled Christian that I want to be, and forget everybody else. It's not talking about that. It, it, it's talking about our ultimate allegiance and our ultimate accountability to God alone. And these non-biblical areas will one day appear before Him and no other to answer all of our non-biblical opinionated Actions on earth, especially these gray areas in which we will differ, we will differ, we will differ. And you know i thought a lot about this over the last several weeks and I assume that maybe one of the reasons in God's economy, His masterminded principle of why, in fact, these areas aren't more explicitly stated for us in Scripture and maybe that's because the Lord is trying to make us be sure that in these non-biblical areas we learn to love, we learn to accept, we learn to get along. We learn to rejoice in our differences. You say... But it's so hard. Yes, it is. And let's close with a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll show you how hard it really is. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is a great place to end, because we've got to be careful that even if we thought that the person who was making these non-biblical opinions, we're doing it with the wrong motives, and we want to help them. We want to come alongside them. We believe that they're injuring themselves. we got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we don't judge their motives. We don't really know what's going on inside their hearts. We would love otherwise to be like the Lord and have x-ray omniscient vision into their souls so that we can know exactly what their motives are so we would then be able to say you're hurting yourself and you're hurting others don't do that i can see your heart don't go that way but we can't we're only human beings first corinthians 4 paul in a sense says the same thing to the corinthians themselves he says first one first corinthians 4 this is how one should regard us That is, apostles, those closely associated with the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, I know what my responsibility is and my brethren. It is required of stewards, moreover, that they be found trustworthy. In other words, i got to have the right motives myself. I can't be in the ministry for being on the take from the ministry. I can't do that. I've got to serve the Lord with right heart motives Notice verse 3 though, but with me, that is my motives, my responsibility, my requirement as a steward, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, you Corinthians, or by any human court. And then notice this amazing statement, in fact, I don't even judge myself. You know what he's saying? Look, you guys are all about the premium of judging me. He says, I don't even judge myself. How is it that you're judging me? I don't even judge myself. And someone's going to immediately say, yeah, but aren't there a whole bunch of things in your life for which adjudication needs to occur? Well, yes, but he actually says, verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself. You say, wow. But notice, here's the qualifier, verse 4, end of it. But I am not thereby acquitted. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. In other words, I have an ultimate accounting. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who will judge. He's my ultimate accountant. He's going to judge me. I shouldn't be judged by you. And then notice verse five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Articular construction. The time. Article in front. That means the time. The time at the end when the Lord comes and He will judge. So therefore, don't do it, Corinthians, before the right time and before the right person comes. Don't pronounce judgment on me before the time. Don't, don't think you know my heart before the Lord comes, who, when He comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. That means things in the heart that will be one day exposed to the light. That's the Bema seat judgment. And the Lord, when He comes, will disclose the purposes or the motives of the heart. And then I love this. Because you'd assume that Paul would say, and when the Lord comes and He evaluates those things and He brings them all to light, then that guy's going to get it. Notice what he says. Judging impure motives, when they were really pure, then each one will receive his commendation. God. Oh, dear. You mean to tell me that I was in Corinth and I was one of those that was judging Paul's ministry and trying to determine why he was doing what he was doing. And when I did, I was judging him when the Lord himself was actually commending him. See, that's why you don't want to be on the wrong side of judgment. Because then you will be judged for misjudging. And when you're talking about stuff that isn't right or wrong, stuff that's non-biblical in its orientation, stuff that really is our freedom to either do or abstain from, back away. Don't do it. Don't assume you know the motives of a man's heart because ultimately you will be surprised, very surprised, when that person actually for the deed that you judged him for will receive his commendation from God. I don't want to be on the wrong side of that judgment. And I don't want somebody wrongly judging me for assuming that I had impure motives for doing this, being in the ministry, for preaching the Word of God, for ministering to people, and then that person seeing that it was my heart to do the right thing or my judging them when they were really doing the right thing. You say, but but what if they're doing the wrong thing? Guess what? They're going to be answerable to God. He's, he's going to take care of it. You don't have to. You don't have to say, Mr. Judge of the universe, step aside, please. I'm taking over. You don't have to do that. The Lord himself is fully capable, omnisciently, perfectly so, to determine the motives of all hearts. And guess what? That's exactly what he will do. You know what it does? It actually frees me up. I don't have to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner of the motives of the hearts of people around me. I can let him do that, and I can be freed up to do what I need to do, and that is to concentrate on living the Christian life myself because it's hard enough to do just that, right? It's just hard enough to do on its own. It's exactly what Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough trouble of its own. The bottom line, my goal today is to pillow my head tonight and make sure I've concentrated on my own Christian life. How in the world do I have time to assume that I can spend mental energy assessing the motives and the actions of others in non-biblical areas? I don't. Do you imagine how much wasted time and energy has been spent on our own Adjudications and judgments and assumptions and presuppositions of the motives of others. Now, words and actions. An evaluation of such. The wrong or rightness of what Scripture actually explicitly says. It's a different matter. And God will deal with that too, and he may even use you as an instrument at times to go to your brother and say, you said this, and that was offensive. That's against the word of God. Let me implore you. Let me encourage you. Let me admonish you. That's a different issue. But on these non-biblical areas, don't judge. Let's see if the Lord can produce in us as a church the kinds of non-judgments on freedom issues That would blow the minds of the unbelieving community around us when they see how flexible, how welcoming, how accepting, how loving we are toward each other. And it may just be that they say, how come you didn't jump on that? I thought you Christians were. I thought this was. I thought you were supposed to. And you can say, those are non-biblical areas. That person's free to pursue that course of action. I'm not their judge. I'm just trying to stand before the judge one day for my own life to have the best kind of Bama seat judgment I can possibly have. Oh, that's enough for us, is it not? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, that is enough for us. Thank you for challenging us, even this day, to make sure that our judgments in these non Biblical areas are charitable, loving, gracious, kind, welcoming, accepting. And oh, let us stay away, my Lord, from passing critical judgments and from despising one another. Oh, may it be so, so that we might learn how to get along with one another in the body of Christ.